הזה ביחד, כולם, כל אזרחי ישראל. אנחנו כרגע משיגים את כל העולם, אנחנו פי מאה מהעולם, לא פי שניים, לא פי שלושה, לא פי עשרה, פי מאה מהעולם. You're hearing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's delighted at the success of Israel's vaccination campaign. There's a lot of symbolism in a vaccine. Will it be the beginning of the end of Corona in time for Netanyahu to say, I beat this and get reelected? Will it immunize him from criticism and anger over his corruption cases, in which he's considering asking for immunity for a second time? And over in the camp of parties who are opposed to Netanyahu over the last two weeks, there's been a glut of new parties flooding the political system. It's hard for voters to keep up, and they're also talking about a range of issues. But first of all, Netanyahu is very happy for the Arab citizens of Israel. In the clip you just heard, he's speaking from Uma Fahim, where the millionth Israeli vaccinated was an Arab-Palestinian citizen. For anyone who thinks Netanyahu was courting votes, well, he was. He said it himself. No two ways about it. I want your support. Today, after our election news roundup, we're going to discuss the thing that all parties and voters should be focused on in an election cycle, issues on the agenda and ideology. This episode is called Where Have All the Ideas Gone? What are the different ideological camps saying about these issues? To answer that, we have Dr. Gael Tarshir, a political scientist from Hebrew University with us. Hi, Gael. Hi. Thank you for being on the show. Sure. I'm Dalia Shenlin, public opinion researcher and campaign strategist, and I'm here with Haaretz senior correspondent Anshul Pfeffer. And this is the Haaretz Election Overdose podcast on January 7th. Anshul, before we get to the events of the election campaign here in Israel, we can't ignore the events in the United States that kept us up all night watching Washington, where President Trump was stage managing an insurrection by his followers on social media and in person. Do you think that this will have an effect on the political discourse here in Israel and more specifically on this election campaign? Hi, Dalia. Um, the answer is it won't have that much an effect, uh, certainly not a direct effect on, on our election. First of all, we've still got two and a half months to go before the election. And I think that everybody in Israel already has their own narrative of what, of what happened. The left are saying, you see, we told you this is what Trump is like. You, Netanyahu, and you, Bibists around Netanyahu, have all like that. We're now looking at you very close to see when you're going to be storming the Knesset in an uh, enraged mob. But I think that, on the other hand, the right do have a certain narrative, which which may be a bit of a fake narrative, but they have a narrative against that, saying, well, in the last year, those who have been storming Balfour Street and have been uh, refusing to accept the result of the election in Israel are the left. And It's like a said, little bit hard to say that they don't accept the election results in Israel because I, they've lived I, with this I government said, for said, the last it, 11 years. Like I said, it's a, fu- it's a fake narrative. But I don't think a, a large number of people in Israel are going to be suddenly waking up this morning, looking at the scenes from Washington, and then thinking differently about Israeli politics. Maybe Gail will have uh, will have her opinions on that later on. But uh, I don't think it will have a direct effect on, on the political discourse here in Israel, certainly not in time to affect the election. But there will be, I think, a more uh, indirect effect because... What happened yesterday in, in Washington, D.C. has further toxified the Trump brand. And by toxifying the Trump brand, they're also, also anybody who was supporting Trump and was close to Trump will be even more tainted than they were before yesterday. Who is a bigger supporter? Who is closer to, to Trump amongst world leaders than Bibi Netanyahu? 
And I think this could have an effect on the attitude of the incoming Biden administration towards Bibi, especially this is very important for Netanyahu during the campaign. Will he get an invitation to come and meet President Biden in the two months between the inauguration in the U.S. and the election in Israel? And I think that his chances of getting that invitation have gone down even further. I mean, I think what we're looking at now is a narrative that Israelis might be asking themselves on the one hand, which is, Tell us who your friends are. Show us who your friends are, and I'll show you who you are. And will you know the question among those voters' minds is: Has Netanyahu's stock somehow gone down because he's so close with Trump, who's caused all this chaos? And I think that question is going to be on voters' minds, but probably only the voters who are already not voting for Netanyahu. The other side of the narrative in Israel that I think Netanyahu's supporters will also be telling themselves at this time, following what happened in the U.S., is well. Okay, Trump turned out to be a Meshuggah, which we kind of knew beforehand. But despite all that, he was good for Israel. We call it a key to the White House, and it's a key to our country and to our hearts. Thank you, Mr. President. And I have said, and this is true, that you have the key to the hearts of the people of Israel. Even if he did terrible things in the U.S., and even if he's responsible for all this chaos, it was good that we enjoyed a good friendship between Netanyahu and the American president because we got great normalization deals out of it. And I think that we have to also remember Netanyahu has successfully portrayed himself as the country's top statesman. It's not only about Trump. He has lots of other uh, world leaders he's friends with, most of them populist, authoritarian, illiberal regimes. But that is still part of his credibility in his voters' minds. But that's the question. If when President Biden will become president and not president-elect, Will the absence of Donald Trump over the major part of this of this election campaign in Israel and perhaps some much more less friendly tones coming out from Washington walls and will it, will that harm him with any of the Israeli voters? Because after all, Bibi used Trump as such a major prop in, in the last three elections. I'm not sure if it will hurt him because I think Israelis generally assume that any American president is on the side of Israel. But I want to ask you, Angel, it's not only about foreign policy, right? It's true that Netanyahu campaigns on this issue a lot because it's a very positive achievement for him from his perspective and from the perspective of many of his voters. But what about all those other issues? Will the vaccine be turned into a tremendous success in conquering corona or will he be blamed for the failure to manage corona and the economy properly over the year? What about his corruption cases, the appeal he's now making to Arab voters, defending or constraining the Israeli judiciary, something that we'll talk about with Gaia? What do you think is going to be the determining issue? Well, vaccinations will certainly be a massive issue, first of all, because we will all at some point over the next uh, two or three months, be literally experiencing it in our flesh. We'll, we'll have a needle stuck in us. Right to the deltoid. Yeah, well, not, maybe not that deep. But uh, it certainly will be on our minds. And it's going to be on our minds because Netanyahu, as prime minister, has the bully pulpit to push that. And he's already pushing it with for all his, for all his worth with almost a daily visit to another vaccination center. So that's going to be... A major issue but the question isn't whether it will be an issue it'll be an issue but can Netanyahu detach vaccinations which seems to be a successful campaign so far certainly by the numbers we hope it'll continue being a successful campaign over the next two or three months and the majority of Israelis will, will be vaccinated but can he detach vaccinations from the wider picture of his government's shambolic handling of the pandemic over the past year and we've seen in the polls over the last few months how Likud has tumbled 
because of uh, Netanyahu and his government's uh, bad handling of the coronavirus. So can he create that distinction in the public's mind? That is not my fault, all the, ter- all the three lockdowns and, and businesses closing and kids being at home for, for almost a whole year. Can he put that aside and have voters focus only on their vaccinations? And that's the real question, I think, of this election. As for the corruption case... It's going to be there in the campaign, no question. But it was in the three previous campaigns and it didn't seem to have that much of an effect on how people voted. I mean, by now, every Israeli has heard so much about Netanyahu's corruption or allegations of corruption, depends how you're looking at it. And we're all pretty stuck in our views for and against him. So I, I think that the case will be there. I'm not sure it will have a huge effect. Now, the charm offensive towards Arab Israelis is, is the most intriguing story because it was totally unexpected and it of course highlights Netanyahu's breathtaking chutzpah after his own record of uh, of statements and in quite frankly incitement against Israel's Arab citizens. I'm not convinced it's going to be a major part of the campaign. I think it's more Netanyahu not allowing any vote to remain on the floor. That is Bibi. He wins by pursuing every single vote possible. He doesn't say, oh, well, in that village there are only 10 voters. No, he goes there. I just want to stop you just to give you some credit here because, Angel, I've heard you say that line several election cycles in a row now, which means it's true every time. Is that always the case that throughout his political career and every election campaign he fights for every vote no matter how remote? That's true. And also if you look at Netanyahu's uh, results, we always say he's a winner. He's always won by small margins. He is expert at manipulating and maneuvering with very small margins and to win even by small margins you need you need every single vote that's what he does it's a cute story i don't think it's going to be a major feature of this election i could turn out to be wrong but what i'm much more interested in 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 asking and we can't answer this for sure whether there'll be a longer term breaking of a taboo on including uh, israel's arab citizens in the political game, and I hope I hope it will, and I hope it'll come back to bite Netanyahu on the arse, but that's another matter. But you have done a number of in-depth polls of our voters, uh, Dalia. What do you think? Yeah, I've done a lot of polls in uh, pretty much every sector uh, and voting constituency in Israel, including a number of polls among the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel. And I think that we are in a sensitive moment that could herald some change, but it's very schizophrenic. In a way, it could go either way. Of course, I can't tell you what will happen, but I can tell you what Netanyahu will be campaigning on with relation to those voters. He is going to say since 2015, late 2015, when when my government decided on decision 922 to invest 15 billion shekel. The name of the law is actually for minority communities, but it's economic development, infrastructural development, transportation improvements and education. It's basically throwing money at the problem. He's going to say, I poured more money into this community than anybody else before me. In fact, only about 3.5 billion shekel have been distributed so far. So it's a little bit less of an achievement than he'd like to think. But it's true that there is this major investment in material circumstances of that community. Of course, it's been a devil's bargain because the other side of it, as you hinted earlier, has been a series of dramatic uh, rhetorical and legislative attacks on the position of this community in Israel. Netanyahu himself Uh, making those attacks, either portraying them as a threat to Israeli society, their political presence, or simply irrelevant and leaving them out of coalition negotiations. The nation-state law, of course, uh, relegating anybody who's not Jewish to a sort of secondary status in Israeli life. And so there is an equal level of material investment, but injury to the collective of this community. And I think that that has had a 
profound impact, of course, on the Arab-Palestinian citizens and the way they think about the political system. At points, it has been demoralizing, and some many of them have not voted in some of the previous elections in light of this. We're always looking at turnout problems. But surveys do show very high support for an Arab party joining the Israeli government coalition, something that has never happened in Israel's past as an independent party. And the support for that is very high, but there are competing ideas about it. And I do think it's the case that because there's a real internalization of the reality that when Arab-Palestinian citizens vote for either left-wing Jewish parties or for Arab parties, they don't have a strong influence over policy. They don't join the government. And there's a sort of craving to say, we really do want to be part of this. We want to have an influence. The parties have all disappointed us. Maybe some will decide it's time to throw in our lot with the parties that actually control the government. And as you pointed out, if he wins by small margins, if there's you know a small number of people who make that change, it could play a role. Dr. Gerald Shear is a senior lecturer at the Political Science Department of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Her doctorate is from Oxford University, and she is a researcher, writer, and frequent media commentator on political ideology in Israel and around the world. Her most recent book is Governability or Democracy, which is out in Hebrew this month. Thank you for being with us today on the Election Overdose podcast, Gail. Sure. As Dalia said in the intro, we're asking, where have all the ideas gone? The ideology vacuum in Israeli politics... The election in March seems almost certainly to be yet another round in a series of referenda on Netanyahu and his suitability as prime minister. Other than that, it's pretty difficult to distinguish between most of the parties running in this election. I'd like to start by asking you whether we can regard being pro-Netanyahu or anti-Netanyahu as valid political ideologies. No, I think we need to look for the ideology behind the um, personification of uh, pro or anti uh, Bibi. And I think this can give us a clue to what happened over the last uh, three cycles uh, of elections and why this fourth one is different. And I think um, the opening uh, remarks that you had about uh, Trump uh, are very telling in terms of the neoconservative nationalist populist uh, ideology which uh, Netanyahu actually mastered. And I think it can tell us a lot, both in terms of how how do we build the uh, left and right in Israel and uh, what did Netanyahu uh, over these last uh, three cycles actually, uh, how he moved the uh, ideological uh, scene to the far right and what is the electoral space that uh, opened up uh, to the left of him and whether Saar and Bennett, uh, the new uh, uh, candidates that uh, are on the right in a way, play with this or whether they are uh, more to the center. So I want to reframe the idea of what is left and right and to show what Netanyahu did uh, during the last uh, three elections and how the other actors actually uh, are placed on this uh, agenda. You have written uh, a recent article about one of these new parties, the party established by Ron Khuldai, which is called The Israelis. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting points you make is that they seem to be proposing a strategy rather than an ideology. What is the difference between strategy and ideology? Okay, so l- let's just uh, put it on the on the table. Um, usually when you look at Israeli politics, you ask whether you're for the two-state solution or against it. And that's the way that Israel's politics usually being understood. I don't think this is the main idea over the last decade. I think under Netanyahu's rule, um, the major issue is whether you are for a Jewish state, 
or for an Israeli state. And I think uh, this is part of what the uh, 2011 uh, social protest uh, brought to the table. Uh, it was then played out by Yair Lapid and uh, Shmuli and others, uh, Labour and uh, Yesh Atid. And I think uh, Ron Khuldai is playing into this uh, narrative of the Israelis versus uh, the, the Jews. Just to say, this is not entirely new because the chief strategist, Arthur Finkelstein, absolutely uh, pointed this out probably in the mid-90s already. He used to say that everything you need to know about Israel can be defined by a poll question, do you consider yourself more Jewish or more Israeli? And, and Shimon Peres, without knowing that that was Finkelstein's uh, strategy, said in 1996, in, in her interview, after he lost to Netanyahu, in the 96 election that the Jews beat the Israelis. Right, but the Jews uh, today have a much thicker um, ideology than they uh, did uh, in the later 1990s, and it has to do with the, what they call the, constitu- the Constitutional Revolution. So this is the linkage that Netanyahu's uh, government uh, did. And today, I think the major question to distinguish between the Jews and the Israelis, uh, so to speak, and of course, the context is that for the better decades and decades of Israeli politics, Israelis who are also Jews thought of Israel as being both Jewish and democratic, both Jewish and Israelis. So the distinction is really uh, what, uh, uh, and you mentioned before, the national uh, state uh, basic law, which could have passed with uh, 90 or 100 uh, MKs uh, supporting it, but he didn't. Why? Because the idea was to distinguish between the patriotic nationalist uh, Jews and those who are against it. Now, the major issue I think is going to uh, go down for this fourth election is the anti-constitutional kind of uh, claim that comes from the right. And this is where I think Bennett and Saar are even more right-wingers than Netanyahu. So I think the whole space from Saar, Bennett, Netanyahu to the center and left uh, left a huge space and we see all these new parties coming along and saying, no, we are real liberals. We are real both national and liberal. This was the, uh, the Likud's uh, promo for many, it's many still, years. It still is the official name of Likud. Likud's official Absolutely. name in the party's foundational papers is Likud, a national liberal movement. Absolutely. And what Netanyahu did is he took liberal to be neoliberal uh, economically. He took the national to be neoconservative and he moved him to the far right. And today Likud's, Netanyahu's Likud's is anti-liberal in terms of political liberalism. And this is one of the big uh, riddles that we have. Whether Saar and Bennett, who also play on the neoliberal card but not so much on the liberal card, whether they will be, and so far they're very successful, uh, in convincing their center the right of center and maybe even the the left of center that they are really also liberal political. Where how do you test it? You test it on a state and religion issues, which both are more conservative than Netanyahu. If you look at, at the laws in Tel Aviv and other places, and the attitude towards the courts, and especially of course the Supreme Court. Again, they are both much more to the right of Netanyahu than to the center. But Dr. Tashir, when we have three parties on the right wing, we have as you mentioned, Gideon Saar's New Hope, Naftali Bennett's Yamina, and Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Beiteinu. Three very right-wing parties, but all to different degrees, but all agreeing that they want to replace Netanyahu. So we have three anti-Likud, anti-Bibi right-wing parties. Can we say there's a different kind of ideology, or is it, as Dalia said, just a strategy? Um, 
I think that the coalition that Netanyahu fears he will see after the elections, the coalition of these uh, neoconservatives that you just mentioned and Khuldaiz Israelis and uh, maybe even uh, whatever is going to come up with labor and the, and the blue and white, uh, this will be not an ideological uh, uh, government, but a government that wants people primarily to bring back the consensus of Israel being both Jewish and democratic. But they will be farther apart ideologically because Saar and Bennett are even more to the right than Netanyahu. But since Netanyahu is today a loyalist party, Netanyahu's party, it's not really the Likud, which is national and liberal, then I think this is the one phase that you need to clear the table from and afterwards you are going to go back into uh, ideology. But then, of course, what you started with your question, Dalia, about the Israelis, the left and the center are playing a strategist game for, for uh, almost a decade and a half now. They don't vote on their ideology. They vote on who they think can actually uh, outset uh, Netanyahu. And I think this is a deep problem of the left because what we see, and you know it as a pollster, that there is between a fourth and a third of the population that always vote for centrist parties which have no ideology. clear ideology they go for the leaders they go for the hope that uh, they are proved uh, their uh, leadership in whatever in the army in the local uh, government etc and they don't bring to the table values and ideologies and for once uh, Israeli center of left has to come and say look we are for social democracy and social democracy is an agenda about liberal democracy and about uh, rule of law and about uh, being an inclusive Israelist uh, society and not just uh, um, trying to be a reactionist to what Netanyahu is uh, actually saying I remember in elections when I was a kid but I was following then I was I was a political geek already as a, 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 even before I was a teen and Uh, I remember that every election every single party brought out a thick book a matza or a manifesto a, a platform mm-hmm. every country has a different word for it of their plans in every single policy sector and we're not seeing that anymore in Israeli politics occasionally you'll have a, a couple of pages perhaps online of the the, the party's views but it's very rare to see nowadays an Israeli party running with a detailed manifesto and a detailed platform of ideas what's happened there is it all about Netanyahu or there's another other other reasons for the ideology and the policies disappearing from our first of discourse? all it's it's just not the truth because uh, every new party that is being formed is uh, is working on this new platform and you can see yes in 2013 with a uh, 50 pages uh, along a uh, platform and uh, and uh, of course uh, blue and white had a uh, 80 uh, pages uh, platform most of blue and white's platform was taken from yes and it hasn't changed for seven but or it, eight years. it was different from yes and I read a, the blue in a few tiny I, nuances it's it important was, to say that I I read the blue and white platform about four times and I still don't really know what they were proposing oh. to do on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which we will exactly. talk about as well. Okay, so we can talk about the Israeli-Palestinian uh, um, conflict, but I think the Likud party does not have a, a platform since 2009. The, uh, uh, Gidon Sar wrote their uh, last uh, platform then. Uh, their main idea is to say, 
our platform is our policies. We are the ruling party. We don't need a, a platform, which is a, an interesting uh, argument. All the other parties, even Shas had, a, for the first time, an economic uh, platform uh, in uh, 2015. In bullet points. Uh, no, 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 no. It was, um, uh, Maoz wrote uh, this uh, this uh, platform. It was all about the Shkufim um, campaign uh, that they had. People who are transparent in Israeli trans- society and visible. Exactly. Now, you know that Shas uh platform about the invisible, about the uh, lower social classes, uh, was not their true ideology. When you look at the coalition agreements, because there you see that they only took care of the Haredis and their uh, and their uh, financial needs, and not the social strata. But it will be interesting to see whether Huldai is uh, producing a platform. Uh, and again, I I disagree, Dalia, in terms of. There are five major issues on Israeli uh, ideological uh, um, table, and I think uh, we can place each of the parties on them. So the first of one is, of course, uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. It has transformed from issues on the occupied territories and occupation to what do you do with the settlements. So this is one issue. This I, w- I would say it's even gone beyond what do you do with the settlements to what should we annex. If we should annex, we don't uh, hear about, you know, are we willing to withdraw from settlements anymore? We haven't even asked it in a survey in, a, in five years. Absolutely. But I think that uh, also the consensus has changed. So today, even the left is saying, yes, we're going to annex uh, the big, uh, the big uh, settlements and we're going to settle with uh, unpopulated uh, territories. And too. So, so, yeah, it has shifted. I think that today it has to do with the uh, Mahazim, however. Strongholds. Outposts. 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 Exactly. And this is what we saw in uh, the Knesset over the last uh, few weeks, the idea of uh, both uh, 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 the Supreme Court saying no to Chokas Dara, which... Settlement regularization law. Okay, so uh, the Supreme Court said no, and now it was brought back to the table with the, with the outpost uh, law, which didn't pass, but this is, you know, this is the extreme of the extreme. Those are uh, settlements that uh, are illegal by way of, uh, of uh, being private lands of uh, Palestinians. And this is the extreme where the, uh, this uh, uh, issue is holds. But this is only uh, trivial today in Israeli politics. The second uh, issue is the socioeconomic and uh, the coronavirus uh, put it back on the table. Uh, we can talk about that. The third issue is the issue uh, of the constitutional revolution. And this is where uh, the big beef between uh, blue and right and uh, the right in Israel uh, actually stands. Uh, and the and Piskata Idgabud. Override law. Yeah, or override over- clause. Exactly. Yeah. The override clause which is, uh, which is dominant. The idea uh, is that to try to limit the power of the Supreme Court when it protects on constitutional grounds uh, the uh, the uh, civic uh, rights uh, of individuals or or minorities in Israel and the right wing in Israel in saying no the Knesset but more so the government with its 61 majority should be able to overrule what the uh, court uh, deemed as unconstitutional which means that Israel is not really a democracy. If you're saying that the court cannot say that you uh, damage uh, individual rights because of collective uh, issues, then uh, that means that you're reconsidering whether you are a real democracy because in democracy, first of all, you have civic rights, individual rights, and then you have collective um, collective issues. And the, the fifth one is, of course, the national home uh, uh, basic law versus the equality law. So people on the right voted against the 
equality uh, law as a basic law. The, the uh, law that does, that does not yet exist, we should say. Exactly. And it, it does not exist because of the both national religious and the right uh, being opposing to it since 92 and since, of course, uh, 48. So these are the major issues and they're ideological issues and they're interconnected. And this is what determines today left and the right in Israel. But you are supposed to know that the majority of Israelis are not at this extreme uh, far right position. They are much more to the center. And this is, I think, the, uh, the grounds of uh, the debate today in Israeli politics, whether the uh, Saar, Bennett, Khuldai, uh, Lieberman and uh, what is remains of the left can bring back the consensus to being both Jewish and democratic, both, li- both liberal democracy and Israel as the national uh, state of the Jewish people. Well, I mean, in terms of t- breaking down the Israeli politics, population into left right and center I would I would argue a little bit because I think that you know the far right you're right it's it's a minority it's maybe 20-25 percent that's not a small minority but if you add the moderate right and we have to understand what that means then you get to about 50 percent of the Israeli electorate and among the Jewish population it's even higher closer to 60 percent mm-hmm. so we have to be a little careful what I want to ask you and you actually really preempted my question is the When I've looked at center parties, they have to make a decision about whether they have an ideology on the number one issue, and you yourself said it was number one, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And if they don't, they don't always survive. I mean, in general, the center parties don't survive very well. Mm-hmm. What is the center camp going to – what do you think they should, or are they proposing either on the conflict-related issues, which are such a towering question in Israeli society, or are they simply going to focus on – The Yeshatid approach, social, economic, and just leave all that other stuff aside. So two issues there, because I think it's crucial in terms of understanding uh, how Israeli politics has been analyzed. First of all, part of the center used to be also the religious and the Haredic uh, parties. I absolutely agree with you that they are today an integral part of the right. So this is one thing that we have to clear. Second, for the centrist parties, the reason they do not survive is, first of all, because they are personal or personality-focused uh, uh, parties, and second, because they don't have a real policy. And I I think that in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, they uh, prefer the idea that there is no partner, but we need to continue to try uh, to have negotiations, which is the leftist uh, uh, kind of ideology. And I think uh, even uh, Yeshatid is vowing towards uh, this, uh, this uh, kind of analysis because economically it's better to have a pro-negotiation kind of uh, uh, approach. I think uh, centrist parties do not survive and should not survive because you need to bring the issues of ideology. If you look at the uh, policies that Yeshatid uh, uh, strove uh, when they were part of the coalition, they're all social democratic uh, positions covered up as Republican uh, uh, ideology. And I think uh, just uh, to finish up that the issue of whether you speak Uh, in an uh, Israeli language in terms of rights or whether you speak of rights and obligations is the key aspect of uh, distinguishing between the right who says yes rights but also obligations and between the center left that says uh, no we are a liberal democracy rights you don't have to uh, uh, to do anything to get your uh, civic uh, rights that's a very good distinction and I'm glad you raised the issue of personal politics and personality driven parties because we're going to talk about that in the final section thank you very much dr Gail Talshir please political scientist at Hebrew University, for being with us. Sure, thank you. And now to my favorite section. Israel has a great 
So my choice for this week uh, for our jingle section is a jingle that made quite a deep impression on me when I was 18 years old and it was used in the 1992 election. And I find myself often re-watching it on YouTube. It also ties in directly to our discussion right now with Gail on political ideology and the lack thereof. I'm referring to the Yisrael Mechakal Rabin. Israel is waiting for Rabin theme song of Labour's campaign in 1992. Now let's very quickly set the scene. Back in 1992, we're talking about a pre-internet age Israel with only one television channel. And at that time, the television and radio party propaganda every evening in the three weeks running up to the election was a hugely important and very influential part of the campaign. Now, why was the Israel is waiting for Rabin theme so clever? First, it melded together both the past and the future. In 1992, many Israelis still remembered the Six-Day War in 1967 when Rabin had been the victorious IDF's chief of staff. And at the time, in the weeks before the war, there was a popular song in Israel, Rabin Mechakele Natser. Rabin is lying in wait for Egypt's President Nasser. So Labour was riffing on Rabin's tough military record. But it also had that for its time a rather revolutionary message that Labour's ideology didn't matter so much. In the rest of the jingle and the one-minute video clip, there was nothing about Labour's ideology or plans, just upbeat, cliched visions of a proud and successful Israel, the kind of country we would have if Rabin was elected. And it's clear that even back then, in 1992, Labour had lost confidence in the strength of its convictions and were running in cell on the strength of its candidate, and it worked then in 1992. I think it's worth remembering in yet another election where all ideological content has been removed and replaced by the yes, Bibi, no, Bibi debate that Netanyahu wasn't the first person to do that to Israeli politics. Rabin was there before him. Menachem Begin arguably was there before him. And even David Ben-Gurion in the fifth election with the famous uh, slogan for then, Hagidu Ken Lazaken, say yes to the old man, replaced policy and ideology with personality. Just to add my final hope that there will be an ideological factor and that we will be talking about issues on the national agenda in this election. And that's it for our second episode of the Election Overdose podcast brought to you by Haaretz. I'm Dalia Shenlin. I've been speaking with Anshel Pfeffer and Gail Talshir. We want to thank also our producers, Jonathan Manovich and Amir Faktor. We want to thank you, the listeners, for being here. And we invite you to send questions that we will try hard to address in future episodes. You can reach us on our Twitter or Facebook accounts, post them publicly or send us direct messages. We want to hear from you. You can find us on the Haaretz website, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast apps. Shalom, salamat, and lead both.